recording Steve Weinberger with Frank Williams at Avid Brewing. Stop time series, Stan Kenton, part two. Frank, when you're ready. All right. How you doing now? We're going to continue this talk about um, someone who I consider a very controversial uh, um, figure in jazz history, and that is uh, Stan Kenton, great pianist, educator, and uh, band leader, uh, arranger, as a matter of fact, especially in the early part of his career. Uh, born 1911 in Wichita, Kansas, uh, moved to Colorado, and then moved to a little community outside of uh, L.A. And although L.A. is, uh, we'd have to say, very, very liberal, uh, where the Kitten family moved was a little town, uh, it's kind of a suburb, called Bell, California. And Bell is one of the smallest towns in the United States. And um, let's just say it is also one of the most conservative. And I think that it is that upbringing that kind of informed Stan's life in terms of his values, his politics, and his um, uh, social uh, and racial habits uh, for the rest of his life. We'll, we'll come back to that, but just remember uh, that early journey, uh, being close to LA, of course, uh, putting close to the entertainment uh, area, Hollywood, uh, the big bands, the movies, so sound scores, he did that until he lost the gig with the Bob Hope Show, and it was a major downturn for him. Lost that to uh, Les Brown and his band of renown. He had to reinvent himself. And he did that by figuring out that a home is where the hatred is. So he left California and he later appeared in New York City, uh, where he had reformed a band with different people. Uh, Vito Marceau was his uh, sax player. They built a band around him and some other uh, great soloists and uh, had a combination at that time. Uh, Stan uh, had become a great promoter. That's the part we don't talk about. A great promoter, a great businessman. And he had this multi-pronged uh, approach. Uh, yeah, they played jazzy music, big band swing, dance kind of stuff. Um, he also had beautiful young ladies out front singing uh, great songs. Uh, lush arrangements, great songs, uh, great publicity, um, and uh, great support uh, from uh, luminaries in the community. Um, Fred Astaire actually endorsed uh, his gig out in uh, New York for the first time because it was at a dance ballroom. Fred Astaire is known for dance. You got his endorsement. All the dancers show up. So that was Stan's business model, so to speak. Cute young ladies, a um, lot of pop songs, some serious big band stuff, bordering on jazz, little comic relief here and there, variety show is kind of like what it was. And it worked for him uh, pretty well. Uh, he was an experimenter. And uh, Somewhere around 46, he brought in uh, Pete Rugolo as one of his um, arrangers. Uh, Pete uh, had been a jazz musician and a um, uh, composer, arranger. He studied with Darius Mio, for God's sake, 
when Darius was in uh, San Francisco. Um, he played uh, with Paul Desmond uh, while uh, in the Army and many other guys that would later become great uh, jazz uh, uh, personalities, including uh, Johnny Richards, who would also become one of uh, Kenton's great arrangers. But Rugolo brought something new to the table. He brought in the Afro-Cuban sound. Um, Artistry in Rhythm, 1946, groundbreaking, revolutionary artistry and percussion. So many great, how shall I say this, uh, Latin-influenced tunes. Arugolo himself uh, was uh, Sicilian, so he was very familiar with the uh, music of the Mediterranean um, and had an affinity for it and did a great job in reproducing it uh, uh, effectively, even had Machito involved in those early recordings. It was a hit. It was something new. And uh, it kind of um, set him on a new footing for success that would last him for the next uh, four decades. Uh, as an experimenter, he likes to try different things. And after a couple of years of that, he wanted to try um, a larger band with strings and 39 pieces on the stage. And that lasted uh, a short while and uh, was not very successful uh, commercially. Um, uh, and so it disappeared. He had uh, another project, Adventures in Modern Jazz. and. Um, trying to take on some of the bebop things that were out there, and uh, that also was not uh, very uh, successful. So eventually, he returned to his adventures uh, in jazz series, which produced more of the uh, Afro-Cuban uh, formula. We uh, brought back um, Malaguena, had a great arrangement somewhere around 91 that J Bill Holman did that became the standard for the uh, most popular versions of Malaguena that are used not just on the concert stage by jazz bands and concert bands, but also on the marching band field for marching bands and indeed drum corps as well. So Malaguena was a great, great groundbreaking tune for the uh, kitten band. Uh, as the 50s and 60s approached, of course, um, rock and roll is increasing and jazz audiences are getting smaller and smaller for everyone. And um, Stan's fortunes begin to dwindle as well. Um, fewer concert people, fewer this, fewer that. And so once again, uh, he starts to retool. In 1959, he started his uh, Stan Kenton uh, band camps after taking over the uh, National Stage Band uh, Jazz Camp. It was first held at Indiana University and then eventually uh, moved to North Texas, but he really uh, made the clinics uh, even more popular than the camps. The camps, you sit there for a number of days, clinics could be one-day events. And at one point, uh, when the concert fortunes were down, he was doing as much as a hundred clinics a year. So he's given a lot of credit for 
fostering interest in uh, jazz education. And there are a lot of people who would say he is uh, one of the pioneers in jazz education. One of the pioneers, I would agree. The pioneer, I would not, because we all know that the way a lot of the uh, predominantly black colleges, HBCUs, um, uh, supported themselves uh, back in the 20s, well, back in the 20s, was they had these traveling uh, big bands that played uh, society events, dances, etc., in order to earn money uh, for the college. Uh, so uh, interest in uh, collegiate jazz has been around since the 20s, uh, at least uh, you know 40 years before Stan Kenton's uh, first um, uh, stage band camps. But he did those camps for the right reason, and that is to spread jazz to as many young people as possible. And he laid the groundwork for what would become one of the most popular jazz education initiatives in history, and that is camps, festivals, where we focus on education such as we do here with our Young Lions uh, Festival uh, every year. This was smart. If that is not working for you financially, let's try something different and help to keep the Stan Kenton organization together. He eventually lost his uh, contract with Capitol Records and uh, he immediately created his own label, his own company called Creative World and they produced his uh, recordings uh, throughout uh, the 60s and 70s. Uh, there are scores of music. Scores of awards, the 1962 Grammy for Malaguena. Uh, very, very important. He had lots of awards, uh, lots of milestones, lots of great music. You have to go in and dig through the music. Uh, the Melatonian Band, where he used um, what I will call um, bellfront French horns, Melatonians, um, to augment the standard jazz band. And this was also something that Rogolo did, primarily because Rogolo was at first a baritone horn player and then later a French horn player. So this particular instrument would have been very interesting to him. And of course, he would have supported the integration of that instrument into the jazz orchestra. So much history innovation with the Stan Kenton um, organization and the people who worked with him. Now. Here's the other side of it, some things that we have to talk about that were not so positive. Um, starting in 1946 with that um, uh, First Adventures album, um, they were the number one band in uh, downbeat and metronome uh, publications. And most of their lead players were winning the polls for best sax, best trumpet, best trombone, best piano, best bass, whatever, for all those years. This continued every year from 1946 until 1956. 1946 to 1956. Didn't matter 
what Chick Webb was doing. Didn't matter what Duke Ellington was doing. Didn't matter what Billy Eckstein was doing. Didn't matter what Count Basie was doing. Didn't matter that we value these bands more than we value the Stan Kenton bands today. In that time, Stan Kenton was king and they were not. And this brought about some concern, especially in the late 40s. There were some writers, uh, particularly African-American writers, who were saying, it's amazing that everyone acknowledges that Dizzy Gillespie is the king of the new thing, this bebop, yet Stan Kenton is making a million dollars a year with his music, and I doubt if Dizzy gets anywhere near that in terms of coin from the realm. And you can interpret though, that statement any way you want, but pretty much is saying that uh, because Dizzy is black, he's not getting paid like Stan. That's pretty much what the criticism was. Uh, this hit a fever pitch in 1956 when the majority of the awardees, both in Downbeat and Metronome, were black. And Stan Kenton, couldn't help himself. He fired off a telegram in which he stated publicly and in writing that the latest endangered species were white jazz musicians. Um, this, this angered a lot of people, particularly uh, Leonard Fetter, who wrote an open letter to him and published it in Downbeat in which he questioned Stan Kenton's ability to look past race in determining the value of human beings and their art. Um, there are not a lot of reports of how Stan Kenton responded to that, but let's just say that even when he created his jazz camps three years later, after doing as much research as I could, uh, and these camps produce and clinics produce a lot of great jazz musicians, uh, Peter Erskine and Randy Brecker and people like that. The only black musician I see coming out of that would have been uh, Keith Jarrett. And uh, when you look at the instructors, they are all uniformly uh, white musicians except for uh, Ray Brown, on bass and uh, Donald Brown, Donald Bird, I'm sorry, uh, on trumpet, Dr. Donald Bird uh, on trumpet. And um, it was uh, indicated that of the 600 musicians, arrangers, et cetera, that would have come through the O'Kenton organization uh, during those four decades, less than 2% were black. So this is the downside of Mr. Kenton and you can do with that what you choose, but it is a fact and these facts can be researched and verified. Bottom line, he popularized jazz in this country. Bottom line, he was a great businessman who changed with the times and when he had a failure, he found a way to retool himself and make another success. He surrounded himself with great musicians and great writers, Bill Holman, Johnny Richards, Pete Rugolo, and on and on and on.
uh, Stan Kenton even credits Benny Carter as being his early inspiration for his arranging. So obviously, even though he, how should I say this, disparaged the black musicians who won the polls in 1956, he was listing and checking out the manuscripts of Benny Carter, who was black, or he could not have considered him as one of his chief um, influences. So this is just one of the conflicts we have uh, in our society, and it seemed that it manifested itself very clearly in the life of uh, Stanley, um, or Stan uh, Kenton. Remember, innovator, great music, reinventing himself time after time after time, coming up with a great formula of great music, some swing, beautiful young ladies up front singing beautiful songs, little comedy, kind of a variety thing, and dance music so the dancers keep going. It made him very, very popular, and it made him very, very wealthy. So let's remember the positive contributions that Stan Kenton made to the history and development of jazz, particularly jazz education. That's also, however, be mindful of the shortcomings that uh, reveal themselves in such uh, an ugly manner. So there it is. I got through it. Mr. Stanley Newcomb Kitten, better known as Stan Kitten, pianist, arranger, band leader composer, actor, and controversial figure. Thank you very much.